Is this on? Am I recording? Hello, I'm here. Hey folks, it's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. I'm glad you're here. Wow, what a week. Jeez. Uh, I mean, right now, the whole world somehow got Omicron overnight. It's pretty crazy out there. Uh, I hope you all are staying safe and vaxxed up. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched SNL. Just, <laughs> I'm just going to tell the story real quick. I watched SNL and Paul Rudd is there. And there was like three other people. I mean, it was just down to a skeleton crew. I mean, it's it's nuts because I was in New York the other week and everything was popping and now it is not. Jeez. Um, we're starting to wrap up this year, a little, little over halfway through the season. And <laughs> this episode this week, let me just say like at the beginning, before, before I record these, I re-listened to the entire episode just to kind of make sure, you know. Uh, make sure there's nothing too crazy. And this, I was like, what on earth was going on the entire time? It's Nigel Caborn. Okay, so if you're not familiar with who he is, he is a legend in the clothing industry, uh, British designer. He has a vintage archive that is jaw-dropping and staggering. I mean, he's he's been in business since the 1970s and has been creating a world with incredibly rich history and storytelling. Uh, <laughs> fun fact, Paul Smith, the designer who's also been on the pod, was uh, an early employee of his. I mean, he's just, he's been around. And what's beautiful is he's, you know, he hasn't really changed. I mean, he's still been this incredibly warm, authentic person. And, but talking with him was an emotional roller coaster. It was a recorded Zoom, but Nigel was rarely sitting down. He's such an evangelist for his craft. Like, we'd be discussing something and he'd just get up and like walk away from the microphone uh, to go show me what he was talking about. And then he would tell me like three or four stories about it, trailing off to another story before finding his way back to the chair to continue our conversation. And I kind of loved it. I mean, it was just, it, it felt like I was at his house and he was just showing me around. And he was so happy and proud of what he's accomplished, as you should, because I mean, again, he's just created an incredible brand uh, with Nigel Caborn. And you know, one, another thing that I loved is he was brutally honest at times, at calling out his own brand multiple times for what he liked and didn't like. You know, I mean, he would say like, oh, I wouldn't wear that right now, or I would wear this too big, or we need to change this, or we're going to redo all that. And I think for most designers and people who are in charge of, you know, multi-million dollar companies, it's rare. Uh, so it was just incredibly refreshing to have this conversation with him. And he's been someone that I've been wanting to have on just since I started this pod. Uh, I, you know, I told him how I basically met him because I called his his store on the, well, not his store, his office on the phone trying to locate a piece. And this is like ages ago. Uh, but it was cool. I mean, it was just an amazing conversation. I'm so glad that you all get to hear this. So I'm going to shut up. I hope you all are getting ready for a wonderful holiday. Here's my conversation with Nigel Caborn. We met, I think I met you over the phone first. All right. Because I called you in like 2000. No, this was before FaceTime. I think this was like 2009 or 10. I was trying to buy a cameraman jacket and I called your shop. Oh, really? at me um i found you i think in a japanese magazine right. and 
I called you and you were like, you were very kind, but you were like, what? You're like, I think you need to find a retailer. You're like, I don't have them just to give you. It was, yeah. I think the cameraman jacket had like just come out. It might've been maybe 2010, but I think it was like sometime between like 08. You know, that's 11 years. Yeah, I know. I told you when you look about 18, what age are you? 36. Oh, 36. (laughs) How are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Good to meet you. I mean, obviously, when we talked 11 years ago, which is 11 years ago, I don't remember that conversation. That's okay. And... uh, and, and when did we ever meet face to face? Then yeah, I then, then I met you. I think through Maurizio Donati at Pizza Oh, Walmart. you mean Maurizio Donati? I call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, very, <laughs> um, I'm very close to him. Him and I are best of buddies, and uh, of course, he's had some top jobs with Double RL. Yeah, boss of Double RL. He's boss boss of Levi Vintage. He worked very closely with Mr. Armani, as he calls him. Yeah. And uh, uh, Kyle, who you've just met. Kyle, have you, have you met Kyle before? Because Kyle's been with me 12 years. Because um, Kyle knows Maurizio very well. Kyle, hey, how you doing, doing man? Yeah, Did you right, yeah. he's, he's about your age. His face is definitely familiar. Yeah. I'd say his I'm face bald. is familiar. Oh, yeah. If yeah, that not, looks I'm more sp- familiar. Oh, I've got a bit more hair on top than you. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, for 72, I think I'm doing okay now. Yeah, I, th- I think you're doing pretty good. Pretty good for 72. It started to grow back. That's it's incredible. It's these, these vegetable tablets I'm taking. I did have a transplant. It's just started to grow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we started to grow. I mean, don't say it started to grow back, kind of. Yeah, it said, yes. It's really growing back. It's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. They they even got they even got like pills for it now that people are taking. Oh, I have been I've been taking plenty of pills, but not to grow my hair. You know, I'm taking pills for this and that. I'm taking pills for greens. I've got creams for my face. You know. Yeah, you're I mean, not we'll, wearing, you're not wearing any creams. I can tell though. Too no. white creams. Yeah, I'm a I'm a, a very fair skinned, fragile oh, yeah. boy. Uh, yeah. So, so how are you doing? Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, I, I really want to thank you for making the time to chat. I well, no, it's great because I've only done a couple of podcasts. I just did one. Uh, yeah, with my it? friends, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence with the, what to call them again? Something kicks. Throwing, um, throwing fits. Throwing fit. And, and they actually were super guys. And, and I think that's the first really proper podcast I've done. And it yeah. was really good fun with them. Because they're really funny. And I picked up a couple of tips from them. They were really nice. And I've also done one with Ponytail. Do you know Ponytail, Journal? Yeah, Lauren? Lauren, yeah. Yeah, so we, I used to work with her when I worked at a shop uh, years and years ago called The Armory. Oh, uh, yes, I remember The Armory. The yeah. Armory is in, in uh, Hong Kong, isn't it? Yeah, there's the, in Hong Kong, but I had yeah. worked in the one. Uh, we had opened the, uh, the Armory in New York. All oh, right, I forgot about that. Yeah, and she had Joe? come over there. Do you know Joe then from the Billionaires Club? Yes. Joe, yeah, 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 yeah. Joe's really good friends because I like Joe. He's a cool guy. And he used to work, I think, in Hong Kong with the Double RL store. 
Yeah. And I think he, we had a mutual friend through a, a guy named Ethan Newton who runs oh, Priceline's out in Japan. I know him very well. Yeah. And he, lives, he lives in Japan, doesn't he, in Tokyo. Yeah. The big guy, I wrestled him about two years ago. And he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't take me down, but I couldn't take him down. So we were complete stalemate. But one thing he did do when we finished the stalemate, he literally picked me up because he's that fucking strong. You know, he lifted me up, you know. He's a strong man, but he couldn't take me down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a nice fella, actually, him. Yeah, those, I mean, those guys are great. And it's funny because I've talked to, you know, hundreds of people over the, you know, years, but, and many of them have been like, you got to get Nigel on. Even when um, your your old colleague, uh, Paul Smith, I talked to Paul Smith. Oh, yeah. Well, because Paul worked for me years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what did Paul have to say for himself? You interviewed Paul, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. He's he said he said that he got you into vintage. Big Jake, there's no argument. He got me into vintage in 1978. He came and brought a jacket to me in that part. Well, he was working for me from about 73 to 75 on and off. And then he became he wanted to be a designer himself. So we started to show in Paris with his wife, late 70s. And one day he was he was always used to pitch himself very near me. So I'd have the cable on, I'd have the Paul Smith. This is before he was oh, never known or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one day he was on the stand. He'd come on to my stand. It's about 1970. I said, I've got fucking something here to show you. And he showed me this jacket, British Army jacket, RAF one, from Wilmot II. And it had this button and tape on. It's like a little button with a slide through it. Mm-hmm. I thought, fucking hell, I love that. And <laughs> I, I know Catherine Hamlet used it about five years later, but I was definitely the first people to use that. And then Daniel Hester plagiarized it about 1980. But I had it off with that button and tape. Uh, and it's sort of stuck with me as a trademark, I think, for years. Although, although I haven't used it for a long time. Yeah, I, I think so many people that I've talked to and and just other people that I've met over the years have, have always talked about how, because of you, they got into vintage. Honestly. You know? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. isn't it? Because I'm really, I don't sell the vintage. But <laughs> I, bang, I bang the drum about it enough, don't I? Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're one of the few people who's also, it feels like you've led a lot with transparency in your design connecting it to the vintage where a lot of people say, look, I love Ralph Lauren and I love that, but they're not always going to say, well, this Um, is from this jacket. And, you know, they just kind of put it all together. And I think that's why I've got got close on 300,000 people following me on Instagram because of transparency. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely what you give out, you get back, you know. And I always talked about the vintage. I'm not frightened to tell people where the ideas come from. Because it gives you an interesting story for me anyway. Yeah, I mean, because you're also like half historian. <laughs> well, what I don't know, I make up. So don't be too, don't be too convinced about that. I make a lot up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're not alone. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But of course, don't make it up completely from bullshit. But obviously I have an idea because I, I know so much about stuff. So what I don't know, I improvise on, you see. Yeah. So there's, there's a bit of truth in it. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the, you've also been someone who 
uh, it feels like now a lot of designers will continue to make the same piece every year and maybe alter it. But yeah. early on, when you know when you'd started with like the 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 summit collection, the Edmund Hillary stuff, I mean, you still make the I Everest still, I still, Parker. Still make the Everest Parker. That's coming up twenty years. Yeah, uh, the Mallory jacket's coming up twenty years. Cameraman's twenty years. Just to let you know, uh, Kyle and I are going to launch this again, aren't we, Kyle, for t- 2023? We're actually going to do it again in a contemporary way. So for 2023, we are fifth, 20 years for Nigel Caborn and fifth and 70 years for Edmund Hillary. And we're going to do a contemporary version of it. And I think we'll probably do a new little book, but mm-hmm. we want to make it more contemporary. It won't be a repeat of the Empress Parker. It'll be something more modern approach. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the Everest Parker, I remember going on a hunt and saving for like over a year to get the, uh, the Everest Parker. But I remember I was, you know, just in shock at the quality of it and, and the, the wire, you know, yeah. in, in, you know, inside the, the hood. And I mean, it's, it's still, it's still one of the most like incredible pieces of, you know, of clothing I own. Well, a lot of people don't know. Everybody thinks I make a fucking fortune at everything I do. Uh, but <laughs> the reality of the Everest Parker, each piece costs nearly seven hundred pounds. So I pay, which is about a thousand US dollars. So each piece that we make is about a thousand dollars, and 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 the ventile in itself, there's uh, three and a half meters at uh, twenty five quid a meter. The sheepskin is about 25 pounds. The Kyoto is about 18 pounds. You know, it cost, anyway, it costs 660 pounds is the exact price to make one piece. So you're not far short of a thousand dollars. So, so, I mean, we sell it for about a thousand, 1100 quid wholesale. So I'm not making that much money on it. And we have to pay up front for every piece. So we use, we've used the same small manufacturer since 2003. And he's the only one left in the whole of Great Britain. And he can, and he makes, I mean, the bit, the most we've ever made in the season is 300. And to make 300 Everest Parkers, you need about a quarter of a million pounds to fund it because he can't afford to give us any credit. So we have to pay up front to make them. So the more we sell, the more fucking hard it is to finance. <laughs> so Jeez. it's a labor of love, that Everest Parker. It's always been a labor of love. I mean, some years I've had to find a quarter of a million pounds in advance to make 250 pieces. It's, uh, well, we don't have to do that with anything else, but the Everest Parker is a, is a work of art, let me tell you. And it's based on, uh, on the uh, 1956 uh, 58 Antarctic expedition with Edmund Hillary and George Lowe, going from north to south of Antarctica. Okay, it's also based on the jackets that got to the top of Everest, but have conveniently used the Antarctic concept mm-hmm. for the Everest styles, if you see what I say. I mix the two up. So everybody thinks that what is what Edmund Hillary got to the top of Everest in, but he didn't. He went from north to south of Antarctica in in that jacket, you see. So I was very clever again in giving a bit of, you know, a bit of mixed information. 
Yeah. Well, but you were, I mean, and I think a lot of designers have leaned more on this over the years, but like you were a clothing brand that was, but to many people, a storyteller. I mean, you still are, but like you, you were telling a story. I mean, that look, geez, look, I mean, to talk about Ralph Lauren again too. I mean, all they do is tell stories. Then they, then they just say, Oh, by the way, here's the clothes in the story. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, Ralph Lauren's a genius. So he does as well. Because, yeah. I mean, which I mean, you pay ten thousand pounds for a vintage piece. So we we did the cold cold weather Parker uh, back twenty years ago, which we're going to relaunch. Carl and I we've been talking about it just today. And there's a white version of the cold weather Parker, which is used. Obviously, the RAF did them in uh, in grey, and then they did them for the army in green. Now there's a white one as well, which I'm not quite sure whether what the white one was used for, but. Uh, I saw one of those up for sale. It was ten thousand pounds for the white one. Jeez. We actually hired it off off Doug the Vinci showroom. Uh, but he he told me the I think he sold it to Ralph for one for ten thousand. I think he was all that sold it to Ralph. Yeah, there's quite a few stories of folks. That, uh, I know that Jason shot of the leather, the American leather jacket company shot. Uh, they had a shot jacket in their store and Ralph came in and was like, this is really great. Like I I'd, I'd love to have it. And he was like, sorry, it's not for sale. And he was like, well, I mean like just name your price. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, no, I'm sorry. It's like, there's, there is no price. And he's like, but if you want, I, I I'll loan it to you, you know, I'll loan yeah. it to you. And so he, apparently it's been on loan for quite a few years. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I've had the same situation. Quite often, I've just said, "Look, I'll give you two thousand for it." Now, what you know, you've got a jacket that's probably worth five or six hundred quid, and I really want it, so I'll, I'll maybe bid them two grand, and I'll get it. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, I don't bid ten thousand for something that, sure, uh, but I would bid two or three thousand. I really wanted it. There's a new REF jacket that, that we've just found, which is on that Saunders company. Uh, in Canada, and I've wanted to buy that for some time, and and I've managed to hire it, but I'd pay three thousand for that if I could get it. That's uh, a great piece. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see many really great breeze pieces now, but but when I see them, I, I know them, and I would I definitely would pay the money for them. Yeah, I mean, I feel like most of the great pieces you already have, right? <laughs> well. Probably seventy percent, maybe. I mean, they keep popping up all the time. There's still pieces I want. Yeah, for sure. This R, this uh, Canadian RF one is uh, is super because you're, you're obviously banging to vintage. So, oh yeah, I mean, it's the the thing that I always tell people about about vintage is it it's not going to get made ever again. There are people um, that will remake vintage. But, yeah. you know, there's nothing that's going to be made for that yeah. the original purpose. Well, some people are experts at it. I mean, Real McCoy is an expert at it. Have you, yeah. involved, have you interviewed the Real McCoy guy? So his son listens yeah, to the show. Great. He's a very good, he's, he, uh, he's a good kid, the son, isn't he? He's very <laughs> nice to dad, though. Yeah. yeah. And the son's a very, very handsome kid, the son, a very nice kid. Yeah. yeah I, like, I like the family very nice. I've been to see him a few times. Me and Ponytail went together. We went to, uh, uh, when we were in Japan some years ago, we jumped on the bullet train. We went to see him and he showed me his whole setup. What a setup he's got. I heard his Leica collection's insane too. He's got everything, that guy. 
he's definitely worth going to see. If you've got yeah. a chance, he's got a great place. Yeah. And the best, and the best vintage. He's got, well, I've got 4,000 pieces. But, you know, I found out recently that Master Bawasti, actually before he died, he had 36,000 pieces. So my 4,000 pieces is pretty irrelevant when you think that Master Bawasti had 36,000. I would think that um, the real McCoy guy's got a huge quantity as well. Well, I mean, that's that kind of brings me to some of the stuff I want to talk to you about because you're, you know, you're a clothing designer, you're a historian, you're like an educator. In, formally and informally, but I'm I'm curious with the archive and stuff that you've built. Do you ever have any desire to like open up a museum for it? Or well, everybody asks me that question. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is because I'm so actively running and working in the business mm-hmm. and doing all the collaborations and chasing around the world, which I love doing. I don't really have time. I mean, I've got the opportunity quite a few times. The book that, um, the vintage books that Doug done, you know, the vintage books that the vintage showroom done, well, they were all my books, and I turned them down. And the reason I took them on in the first place when he asked me was I wanted to give my daughter a job. But when she came to face up to do it, she said, Dad, I can't, I can't spend all my time doing shots on dummies of garments. I hate it. And so I, and I realized what a huge job it was. So I decided not to do it. And Doug did it. And then he did three books and made a great job, a much better job than I ever could have done. Because you, you know, you need a lot of patience to, to do a book. So yeah. the same people ask me now to do a book. And I keep poo pooing it because I want to do it. But the time put into a book is just endless. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not like you, you know, it's not like you're going to wear, earn a hundred thousand making a book. Uh, you know, you, you might make fifteen thousand, and you, it's a year's work. You know, yeah, uh, books are always end up, you know, unfortunately, some form of service to the arts rather than any, uh, you know, financial gain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean that. I mean that's it's still great that you have that. I mean, um. You know, as so, if like to go back, like when you got your first vintage piece from Paul, you know, yeah. what, you know, obviously you, you built this massive collection since, but yeah. like, wh- what was that like when you started incorporating more of that stuff into your designs? Well, he gave me the jacket first. So in about 79, he came on the stand with the jacket and uh, I hadn't really seen vintage properly. I mean, obviously, through being born in this, oh, sorry. Being a fashion student in the 60s, I was very privy to Vietnam and the flower power and the pop music. So obviously mm. I knew all about the vintage. But actually, I started in 1971 on jackets based on pop music. I was very inspired by pop music. And it was only in the late 70s that I got into vintage. Paul Smith showed me the jacket. And, and I said, fucking hell, where did you get that from? It's <laughs> He said, the flea market now, in Paris, and you've never been. I said, no. And he took me to the flea market in Paris to clean court. Took me the next day. I think it was on a Sunday. And I couldn't believe it that there was actually all these old army and navy type stalls selling vintage. You could buy it for nothing. So I got some vintage pieces back from 78, 79, which I probably paid 
60 or 80 pounds. I mean, that cold weather parka that I've got, which is what I used to do the Everest parka, I paid 80 pounds for it. It's now worth 3,000 pounds. I want that garment now is 3,000, and I bought it for 80 quid originally. Just, so if you look at it, so in, in 40 years, they've gone from 80 pounds to 3,000 for a really cool piece. Yeah, I was going to say, and you can wear it. <laughs> and, and, and it gave me the idea for cold weather parking, you see? Yeah. And, you know, as you kind of like moved over to that, I mean, for many people, including myself, they, they, you know, discovered you from the cameraman. Like, you know, how, how did you that come found, about? You found my brand from the cameraman, did you? Yeah. Oh my God. Cause I'd never seen anything like it. Cause I've always been someone who loved 6040s and Sierra designs and the old California yeah. stuff. Same but, here. I loved it as well. But it was never, I'd never seen anything that was incorporating wool and waterproof in the same yeah, well, the cameraman was a complete uh, fluke because I had a really great right-hand guy. I'm talking about Gary James, who's now head of the outerwear at Barber. And he's in his 60s now. And, uh, and, and I had this idea in uh, about 2001, 2002, to do something based on Everest because I'd found some great books on Everest and I thought, fucking hell, look at these pieces. I couldn't believe it. So I went all through the Lake District because they had wonderful vintage bookshops in those days. Uh, and I went right through the whole of the Lake District, finding one book after the next. I couldn't believe the styles. Uh, and I found the Ascent of Everest book, which was wrote by Sir John Hunt. And, I, and that, that was a book about getting to the top of Everest. And I looked in the book and there was a, and there was a, they had, 12 pictures of the 12 climbers that went up Everest. And one of them was wearing a jacket with a hood. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's a cameraman jacket, isn't it? Because he was a cameraman. So oh. cameraman, it then thought, cameraman jacket, cameraman. Okay? And, and, and it reminded me of a vintage piece. And the vintage piece I had was the United States Marine jacket with, you know, the one with the clips of Jerry's hat. Uh, I've got the exact piece here. Okay. FYI, Nigel is getting up and going to show me yeah. these pieces. It's, this is incredible. This is the exact top of the cameraman jacket. Can oh, with like the with the fasteners on there. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. It's Jeez, Louise. Piece. And then I had a army Filson jacket. You know, Filson made an army, an army uh, recorder tie. Yeah. But with a shirt collar, they made one of those in the Second World War in Army Three, and uh, and and I thought I like the bottom of that, and I just threw that down and threw the Filson jacket down. Fucking hell! Look at that. There's a jacket. As yeah. I, and I designed the whole collection in 2002 like that because Gary was like my right hand man. He used to get quite impatient with me. He says, I can't bother with this project. Now you fucking go on and do it yourself. In a much more polite way. And that's what I did. And we photographed the, the top jacket and the bottom and the bottom of the Filson jacket, stuck them together. And that's how I designed that whole collection. And it was based on, and, and how I did the uh, Antarctic Parker 
is I went all the way to New Zealand. I was invited to the America's Cup. Yeah. In about, in, which was in 2002 or 2003 in New Zealand. I went all the way to New Zealand with my wife and we were invited business class to go all the way to Australia by Riri Zips. We're making the zips to, to zip the, on the, um, um, you know, on the actual boat. You used to zip the fucking ca- uh, canvas on the boat with that huge zip. So, <laughs> and because I was, I'd started using Riri Zips from, from about 1980, they, they invited four designers from around the world. So they took me and my wife business class all the way to, to New Zealand. It was costing 20 grand. And it was a lovely and amazing time. And I couldn't get off the plane quick enough because I got wind of that it was Edmund Hillary's 50th anniversary getting to the top of Everest in 2003. And here he was having an exhibition in Auckland. And I was on a plane going to Auckland, um, you know, to do with the Lingi, to do with the, the America's Cup. Yes. Lucky. And when I went to the museum in, uh, in Auckland, I bumped into somebody who I vaguely knew. And I got talking to him absolutely, and he actually told me that the actual Antarctic Parker that went supposedly up Everest, but it was actually the one that went across um, Antarctica, was actually in Christchurch, in a little, in, in Marydown, who were an outwear company of the day. And it was in the front of their foyer of their office. So I said to my wife, I'm, I'm not coming to that thing tomorrow. I'm going, I'm jumping on a train and I'm going to fucking Christchurch. Because <laughs> <laughs> are you fucking mad? I said, yeah, yeah. So I, I went, I think she came with me in the end. And I went all the way to, to Ferry Down. And uh, I knocked on the door and there were a beautiful old company. And in the foyer was the Antarctic Parker in a fucking cabinet. And I said, wow. anyway, I could take that and photograph it. Let me photograph it. I tried to take all the pictures, and that became Everest Parker. But I had to go all the way to New Zealand to get that. Jeez. Yeah. So there's a fucking story to every piece you did, actually. One of the things that, like, also in terms of fashion design, right? Like, and, and let's, let's kind of like take this and set it aside. When many people will make something, they'll say, okay, let me make it look really nice and yeah. I'll use materials that are good enough, but I want yeah. to make a bunch of money off of it. So I'm going to cut every corner I can. Right. Like that's kind of your, your, yeah. your bad design, but like what most people do, but yeah. for you, for like example, the cameraman, you had Harris tweed, you had Macintosh, you had the metal. Oh, fastener. Macintosh is 30 quid a meter stuff. Exactly. And, and so like Harris tweed is 24 quid today. Uh, yeah, it was a really expensive garment. I mean, it was about 800 quid when we did it at the time. I, I mean, we're doing yeah. that, 1100 quid, yeah. I, I mean, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, why did you decide to use materials that were just so such a high quality? Simple answer, British, you know. So when you do something limited edition and you're going to launch it the same way as, way as Edmund Hillary climbed, Everest with his 11 companions, they were all wearing old military stuff. So in World War I, George Mallory took some of his World War 
One closed, military coast to climb Everest, mixed with Harris Tweed. And in World War II, Edmund Hillary was in World War II, and he used some of his clothes to climb Everest, particularly in the, in particular, the army pant with the pockets on the front leg. Uh, and so obviously it made common sense to me to use British fabric. And there's not many British fabrics. So oil cloth, Ventile, Harris Tweed, Macintosh fabric, all key British fabrics. Yeah. So it's a truly British project. And, uh, and all, everything was made in Britain as well. So fabrics were made, garments were made, and they were coming generally from, mine. having said that, the camera came from the Filson and the, and the US Navy. Yeah. You know, so, but generally the pieces were coming from British. You know, everything was British. Yeah, I mean, including, you know, I mean, because you've really led the campaign in charge for making things in Britain. I mean, even, yeah. even when like capitalism wise, it, it might not have been the greatest way to make a lot of money. But like, I think your the legacy that you've built has been so much about manufacturing things the, the traditional way with the traditional fabric. Well, I had to in those days, you know, it's a lot more different today. You know, things have moved on so much in 20 years. <laughs> and, and, and if you make a cameraman today the way that I make it, it's perceived as very old-fashioned and funny-duddy. Mm. And to be very honest with you, although we're still making the cameraman today, I hate to say it, but I don't particularly want to wear it myself. If I was to wear a cameraman today, I'd want to wear a size 54, four sizes too big, and then I'd feel reasonably cool in it. But uh, but I wouldn't wear a, a Cameron or a, a Harris Tweed jacket, particularly. So one of my big um, challenges now when we redo the limited edition from 2003, which is 20 years and 70 years dead with Hillary, it will have to be made contemporary. And I'm working and thinking about that all the time. And when Carl and I have discussions on it now, it's always about how are we going to make, because he's much more contemporary than me because he's, half my age or a third my age. And he actually wasn't with me, obviously. Uh, but, but but we need to make it more contemporary now, I mm. feel. I don't want to repeat it again. Uh, I'd be bored senseless with it. So I'm really going to have to think it. I've got lots of ideas. I'm already working on it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not working on it from the drawing board point of view, but I will be soon. Yeah. You know, I've done a collaboration with Big Performance and a collaboration with Hagloff. So I've done quite a lot of mountain wear lately. The ski wear, ski come mountain wear. So over the last two or three years, I've done a lot for other people. You know, I yeah. don't even see the one I've done for Hagloffs. It's just come out the Hagloffs one. The, uh, the, I mean, the, the collabs you've done, especially with even just like more uh, like the army gym things too, I mean, are yeah. just incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not particularly. Uh, listen, when I first started the Army Gym in 2016, and that was all based on the medicine ball, okay? Yeah. And built myself up and tried to take 10 years off my fucking life, or off my age. It seems to take 10 years off my life instead. Because <laughs> I actually made it, to, you know, to take 10 years. Yeah. Off me. It took 10 years on me, I think, it's such hard work. Yeah, uh, got three of them, three, five, and seven. And of course, this one you can see how fucked up it is. This is because I chuck it against the wall. So this is because it's had years of chucking against the wall. 
And this has been in my suitcase with the other two to Japan. So for 12 years, I took this to Japan with me. Or maybe not 12, maybe eight years, sorry. And so I've taken three medicine balls to Japan. And if you look back at my Instagram five or six years ago, you'll see I was always training in Japan. But of course, I used to go business class. So I used to take one bag full of three balls. So there was a five, seven, five, sorry, a three, five, and seven. Three medicine balls used to go into one suitcase. I used to take to Japan with me. So that's kind of a bit of a story to it as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw you working out on the Arno in, at, yeah. in Florence with your with your medicine balls at like oh, no, 8 a.m. once a Yeah, I used to take it to, to Pitiomo. I used to have my friend um, Daniel. And we always used to, we've, we've always done it, you know. Um, it's, been, it's been all around the world, those balls. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that started the army gym. That started the collection. I'm not happy with what we're doing with the army gym now. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm looking to, to update this. And I need to get, get back to my roots on that, which I will be doing in the next 12 months. Yeah. yeah I mean, because you, how many different brands do you have? Because you have the army gym. Well, you I've have... got the army gym that's, that's really based on my sport, on yeah. my health. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I made sort of a, a thing of that over the last uh, six years. Uh, then I've got the authentic, which is all made in England. Yeah. And I've got the main line, which is my Japanese collection using Japanese fabrics and fills all my 15 stores in the Far East. And then I've got the library, which is British workwear, and it's proper authentic workwear, uh, although it's mixed authentic and, um, and army. It's a sort of a mixture. Well, it's really a mixture of uh, military mixed with real British workwear. Because anything that, that's like war on the decks, for instance, with the US when the weather stuff on the decks, it was really a workwear job, even though they were in military. So we class that as workwear, you see? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, I've got four collections, and I, I do the same in the women's. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which which is also, I mean, that was a that was a newer thing when, when you had launched the, the women's collection. Yeah, well, um, we launched the women's collection about 2012. Yeah. So we do four collections on the women's as well. And then I do all the collabs on top. So some seasons I might be doing six collabs and, and four men's collections and helping Emily with the women's. So I'm pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had read that years ago that Montclair knocked on your door to do a collaboration. Yeah, no, I've had everybody knock on my door. Funny enough, Montclair was a big one. And yeah. I got a personal telephone call from Ruffini on, on Montclair. He just rang me out of the blue. And uh, he, he loved what I was doing in Barney's at the time. At one stage, I had a whole department in Barney's in New York. Yeah, I was doing very well with Barnes. They were so respectful to me, and he'd seen it and loved it. And anyway, he just called me from Italy, invited me over, stuck me in a hotel. And uh, anyway, we had a long chat, and I stayed the night. And I saw him the next day. So in the end, when he showed me his account list, it was the same account list that I was selling to. I thought, well, it's just it's not going to work for me. So I just turned it down. And that was it. But he did leave. They did send me a nice mail saying, if you ever want to do it again, the door was open. This was about six years ago. You know? Yeah. So, so I didn't do it for my sins. But, um, but I've worked closely with Filson. I had uh, four seasons with Filson. 
I work with Eddie Bauer. I work with Red Wing. I work with Yucatan. Uh, of course, I'm now working with Vans. I've just done that 15 piece collection of Vans Vaults, which is fantastic. Yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah, I'm really happy with that because it's, it's really great. And of course, I've worked with Converse for six years as well. So, you know, I've done a lot of American brands. Yeah, I was going to say, like, on that note, I mean, one of the things that, uh, especially because I, I talked to a few listeners of ours and told them that I was going to chat with you. And a few of them sent over some questions that they wanted to ask you specifically uh, of what's what's your take on some of the best eras of, of of clothing. How long have you got? Oh, I mean, well, as long as you have, to be honest. Well, I'm saying that's because fucking make so many errors. As long as you know, as long as they are the errors I made with all the collaborations. Yeah. I, would say, I would say the Vans Vaults one feels feels at this time. To be the most successful one I did in America, because I got we got thirty three thousand pieces for the first season, which is amazing. Jeez. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, thirty three thousand pieces is a lot. But then I did six sneakers and eight pieces of clothing. It's a big collab that, yeah. uh, and and I think almost all the Vans Vaults stores have come into it. I think there's somewhere up to nearly two hundred Vans Vaults have bought into it. So. Yeah. Because normally Vans Vaults do a couple of sneakers. They wouldn't do it. I think that's the biggest collab they've ever done for pieces. That's it's insane. <laughs> but like, you know, like one of the things I want, wanted to ask you about, like, as you've seen so many different types of vintage and different eras of vintage, what would you say, like, like what it was the best decade for American denim? Was it the 60s? Was it the 50s? Well, for collecting vintage. For actually collecting the American vintage, um, I would say from about 2010 upwards, that was a wonderful time to collect very rare pieces. Of course, I've got all the rare naval denim pieces, you know, all that stuff in the 10 ounce. Yeah. You know, fantastic pieces. So I, I managed to get all of those. And then I've got a lot of really rare 30s pieces. Um, but um, I mean, Mauricio Dondi said some of the denim pieces I showed to Mauricio, he said, oh, well, Levi's were looking for that one, but couldn't find it, you know. So, I mean, I've got some pretty rare pieces that even Levi's couldn't find. Um, but, I mean, the stuff that they made in the 1930s and 40s was pretty incredible, really. Yeah. 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 I mean, the 40, like, I, I keep a running log of just, of, like, eBay search awards for, just yeah. like made made in America, uh, like eighties and nineties five hundred ones, and I've you know got maybe like twenty thirty pairs of them. Oh, and I'm you? just like, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, to be honest, they're not really that special. I like sixties five hundred ones. Sixties, yeah, because yeah. I wore one when I was when I was a kid in nineteen sixty seven. Of course, I wore five hundred ones, and uh, even though I was never a big jeans person to wear stuff, but I did as a kid. Um, yeah. And obviously, everybody wore 501s at Fashion College. And, and, you know, when we had the student revolt in 1967 worldwide, you know, it was an M62 and a, and a 501, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. Well, I've got some great denim pieces. And I haven't been very good with denim for years. I wasn't really a denim designer. I didn't understand it. And, and I, really, well, I really started 
only designed the denim. I don't think we started real denim until 2012. And, and, and what happened is I've got good Japanese partners, so they caught on quicker than me. So all the denim pieces that I was collecting, which was turning into other things, yeah, they actually turned them into denim. So the, the best the best denim pieces were made by my Japanese partners for Nigel Cable Mainline, and they are a lot better than what I was doing, actually. To be fair, well, uh, I mean, yeah, because the the denim you you did a, a denim that actually with the armory too, and the Nigel Caborn like you know it was a it was a higher rise denim you had the the you know the almost like the british military arrow on the on the back pocket like the bar tack but like yeah. the yeah, the shape cool. yeah. it's, it's it's probably i think one of the best most underrated pairs of jeans out there and like yeah. and i collect resolute and and sugarcane and all that I stuff remember doing, i remember doing that i did have a beautiful pair of denim about that time that you're talking i had a little short denim work jacket and a yeah. match it and they took a great shot of me out in New York as a shot of me wearing a full denim outfit you know it's yeah. about 2016 and it was all made in Britain that using a Japanese denim and that had the broad arrow on the uh, on the cinch on the back you know yeah I mean and that- that's what we used to do again Kyle that workwear suit that we did Maybe that's what we want to bring back because we made that in England, you know. I've still got that, so I think it's in there. I mean, definitely bring it back because it, it was incredible. I went, yeah. I was searching high and low for those jeans. Yeah. And, I mean, only got them not that long ago. They were quite big fit. How did you manage to get one? Well, so the ones the ones I got were just the five pocket ones. I think oh, the one right. you're referring to is almost like the the jumpsuit cinch, you know. Yeah, thing. cut off. Yeah. 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 Well, I've still got that one and it's quite full. And there's a picture of me in New York wearing it. I'm thinking I'm sitting on a, a metal thing. You've probably seen that picture. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and it also has a little short three pocket work jacket as well, based yeah. on the Blue Ore one from 1930, which Maurizio told me is the one that Levi Vintage couldn't find. He said it was worth a few thousand. I have the exact piece on that one. That's great. I also have the naval one with the hood with the white springs as well. Have you seen that one? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah the naval one's great. Two or three thousand for that one. Uh, we've done it a few times. Yeah, uh, yeah. I did want to ask you some stuff that's not related to clothes, but is related to you. What are some books that you've read? that have made you more into clothes? I mean, basically, there's no books that really made me interested in clothes. You've got to understand there was a, a fashion school from 67 to 71. Mm-hmm. It's just rolled all my life. So I, I never read books particularly well, but I love pictures. So I buy books to take images. So when I buy the Edmund Hillary book, I don't buy the book particularly to read. I buy the images. So right. I'm, I'm totally driven by images, okay? So I'm image-driven, not reading-driven. The picture tells a thousand stories to me. So yeah. when I see a picture of Edmund Hillary on the top of Everest with all the 12 climbers, the rest of it I make up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true what I make up, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
So I'm not a good reader. I just love pictures. So if I see a wonderful picture of Michael Hawthorne, who's a British racing driver, then I check out what he wears. So, you know, so all these famous things that have happened from George Mallory in 24, Disappear on Everest. I've looked at all the books on George Mallory and I look at all the clothes. And then I look at all his friends' clothes and everything else. And so if I go into a football crowd, like I'm doing a collaboration now on Levy Ashim, the goalkeeper, I'm doing a collaboration with Moscow Dynamo. And I look into the crowd in the 1950s to see what the crowd were wearing. So I don't read it. I look at it, you know. That's, That's great. Um, this is the last thing I want to ask, and, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Right. You, you had initially made, when you were starting to make clothes, you had talked about how you were like inspired by, you know, you wanted to make clothes for pop stars and for music stars. Yeah. Um, if 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 you could make clothes for any band ever, who would it be? Oh, it'd have to be Fleetwood Mac, the 1960s Fleetwood Mac. Oh, this you is know, pre pre Buckingham Knicks. Yeah, Peter Green and uh, and the whole team. And I, I don't know, I like Marvin Gaye as well. I mean, Marvin Gaye wears an orange cap like this. I didn't put this on because this, but it would be nice to have made some. Stuff for those type of guys because they're very hit. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Fleetwood Mac, I love Fleetwood Mac, and I love Peter Green, who was the original singer for Fleetwood Mac. So, uh, and obviously, I was very inspired by music between 67 and 71. It was all British pop music, you know. Yeah. It's been great, Jeremy, by the way. Fucking great. Really hey. enjoyed it. It hasn't been like an interview at all. I will say it, it's an absolute honor to speak with you. I, I, I really, really mean that. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's really, you've not even asked me anything embarrassing. You've been great. <laughs> well, Nigel, again, thank you so much. Have a good day. Hey, I'll see you. Thank you very much. See you. Right, you too. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal. And our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify now. They're big flex. Spotify has five-star reviews. Go for it. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content at Blamo Podcast. If you want to talk to us or give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 917-267-2495. Leave us a message. No one will answer it. We'll put it in a future episode or email us at info at blamopod.com. If you want to hang with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons and tons and tons of exclusive episodes in our incredible, amazing Slack community. All right, that's it for me. Happy holidays. See you soon.